0: Hello and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a new weekly podcast shining a spotlight on Australian fiction. My name is Claudine Tonellis. As a writer and avid reader, I love chatting about books. And in this podcast, I'll chat to authors, publishers and readers, giving you, dear listener, insight into what's hot on the Australian fiction scene. So if you're looking for your next book recommendation or just want to know more about Aussie fiction writers, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and enjoy. Every now and then, listeners, a very special book comes along, a book that is so exquisitely and tenderly written, a book which slowly draws you in before delivering a well-placed emotional kick in the guts and breaking your heart, a book that fills you with such joy you find yourself cheering triumphantly. You fist pump the air wondering how you could have doubted the outcome at all, and then when it's all over, you keep thinking about the characters, wondering, indeed hoping that they will be okay. The funny thing about Norman Foreman is such a book, heartwarming, poignant and incredibly funny. This book has it all. It's a debut novel written by Australian Julieta Henderson and published by Penguin, a book listeners that you absolutely must read. And so it is with such pleasure that I
1: welcome Julietta to the podcast today. Hi, Julietta. Hi, Claudine, and thank you so much for that absolutely beautiful introduction. I really appreciate it. And it, it it's never going to get old and it's, it's early days yet, but I don't... If we're going to get old. People telling you they love the book. It's it's such a wonderful feeling, as you would know, as a writer. It's such a wonderful feeling when you you discover that. Your, your words, your little story that you dreamed up is connecting with people. So it makes me very happy. Thank you. Oh, it's
0: my pleasure. And I wanted to say congratulations on the publication of this delightful novel. And I'm, as I said to you before we started recording, I'm consistently and continually amazed by the quality of fiction written by debut authors in this country. How are you feeling now that the book is out in the world?
1: It's a wonderful feeling. It's really exciting. It's kind of been a long time coming not in necessarily the writing process, although that was a long time as well, but the book was delayed three or four times. I think I actually have lost count because of, you know, the big C that we all try not to mention at the moment. (laughs) So finally, and it's still not out in the UK, which is where was my primary publishing contract. That's coming out in, in April. So To have it out here first, which was not the intention, it was all going to be all together, is actually a really big thrill for me obviously because I am Australian and because obviously Australia is very special to me. And to be so lucky as many, many debut authors from 2020 were not able to particularly here in Melbourne, go and visit it in bookshops, that's just the big, you know, anyone out there who's writing a book or looking to get a book published, the feeling of seeing it in a bookshop is just as wonderful as you think it's going to be it's so exciting oh that's so wonderful
0: so obviously i mean everybody is in no doubt now that i absolutely love this book but what is the other
1: feedback that you're getting are you happy with how it's been received absolutely i'm absolutely blown away by the amount of people who it's connecting with and one thing that makes me really happy is i'm getting a lot of feedback about the mother son relationship mm. Lady's a single mother, Norman's an only child. And just that that relationship, I've had so many women come to me or, or message me or ladies that I know or ones that I don't know saying, wow, well, you got that spot on. And that makes me very happy because I'm actually not a mother myself. So I'm really pleased to hear that, that I managed to uh, get into that relationship as, as well as I did. And it just generally, there's been so much love for the book that it seriously has blown me away. It's just a wonderful feeling to know that all the things that I was trying to achieve as a writer, and you know, the two primary ones are I want to make people laugh and I want to make people cry. And I seem to have achieved both of those. So, you know, job done. I'm very happy. <laughs> Yeah. Fantastic. Look, I mean,
0: obviously the mother-son bond in this book is such a prominent theme and I wanted to talk a little bit more about this later, but you've done a terrific job. It really resonated with me as a mother of two sons. Incredible that you were able to put that relationship so eloquently
1: on the page. Yeah. And the people that have said that to me and said, oh, it's, it's amazing. I can't believe you're not a mum. I sort of have gone away and thought about that Because I didn't consciously, while I was doing that, I never consciously thought, oh, I'm not a mother, so how would I know? I mean, it's it's our job, again, as you would know, it's our job as a writer to get inside a stranger's head or, you know, someone else's head, a different sort of character. And I have to be honest that while I'm not a mum, I'm an auntie, I'm a friend, I'm a, you know, I have many, many children in my life and have had done all my life. I, I'm not sure that you need to have experienced that whole, um, you know, insecurity that mothers have about whether they're doing the right job or the best job they can for their child. I don't think you need to have experienced it to to understand that it exists. Yeah. So I'll be honest and say I never, ever asked any advice off any, in fact, no one ever really read this book before it got published. There was a very few, a very small handful of people that read it, but I never even considered maybe I should have, but I never even considered checking. Have I achieved what I was trying to achieve? Is this what it's really like? I I never asked anyone that because it had never crossed my mind to check. You know, if you're doing research or if you're you're writing about, oh, I don't know, basketball or something like that, you'd maybe check with a basketballer to, Mm. to find out you've got to figure. But I never did because I really think that it's universally understood that Mothers and parents and fathers as well, you know, on the whole, are just trying to do the best that they can, and that there is no rule book, <laughs> so mm. um you know this mythical rule book that everyone would like to to find out if they're doing the right thing by their child doesn't exist so and i and I think I understand that just from being a human really. It's human nature and obviously as a writer you're an empathetic person
0: and you can you know put yourself in somebody else's shoes but it's such an interesting thing that you say that to me because there is such a debate and and, you know discussion going on in the writing world about being able to write from an experience that is not your own and you know people telling you you can only write what you know and um, write from your own experiences. So that's such an interesting thing
1: that you're telling me, really fascinating. I think like a lot of people i never or well, maybe not I don't know I can I speak for myself but when all that debate started and the whole you know shining a light on diversity and and what you what you can and can't what you should and shouldn't write I'd never thought about that before I just thought as a writer you know you get to if you want to write about whatever you want to write about, just write. But there is, it it certainly has made me think about the responsibility that you have if you do attempt to write from a perspective very different from your own. And in fact... In my current book that I'm writing, book two, I'm writing from a male point of view. And whilst Norman was a male, obviously, yeah. <laughs> so it's more focused on that it was a child's point of view rather than a boy child's point of view. In my next book, I'm writing from a man's point of view, uh, one of the characters. So yeah, it's, it's given me a lot of food for thought. I mean, I'm doing it anyway, and I'm not taking any you know, again, I don't think that I'm going to hand it to male readers and say, can you check that I've got this right? I <laughs> think I'm just yeah. go with it because it seems to be going really well at the moment, which is a little bit scary.
0: <laughs> now, Julietta, your bio says that you've enjoyed a number of eclectic jobs around the world and that you've been writing professionally for 25 years. So, I was wondering if you could tell me, was it always your intention to write a novel? Oh,
1: always, always. I've been saying, I want to write a book since i <laughs> you know, in my 20s probably, or maybe since I was a kid, I can't I can't really remember. I've always written and I've always written for myself. I've written poetry. I've written, I haven't written short stories, but I've written bits of stories and just snippets. And, and I, that's something I've always done. And I do have three or four novels on my hard drive, as most writers do in various stages of completion and incompletion. But this is my first published one. It's a challenge to get really deep into creative writing when you're writing um, you know, the mundane sort of stuff that mm. you have to write when you're writing for a living, which is, you know, everything from real estate copywriting to profile business profiles and and, you know, travel stories and things like that. So I use that as an excuse for a long time <laughs> not to finish any novel and, and just to do it as a dabble on the side. And then I, you know, had to face up to the fact that the golden rule of writing is just get down and write. And I thought, well, if I really want to do this, I I just have to shut up and start doing it. And so very wonderfully the characters came to me in, in this particular book and I was so motivated that I wrote it And I I was motivated to make it to the end as I haven't been so much with others.
0: As I mentioned in my introduction, this is your debut novel and it's Hmm. been picked up in a number of other countries as well as being published here in Australia. An incredible achievement. So can you share with us what your road to publication looked like?
1: Yes. And thank you for saying it's it's a good debut. I I really appreciate that. I have had a lot of practice, as I said. It's it's my first (laughs) published, but maybe you'll read the other three that are on my hard drive and think, hmm, okay. So... My road to publication has been really, really wonderful. I know there's so many stories out there about you know heartbreak and and, and things like that with really, really good writers finding it, it incredibly difficult to to get a foothold. I was very, very, very lucky, very blessed—all the you know adjectives you want to think of. But before I go any further and tell you the actual steps, what I will say is that. Right from the start, I made a conscious decision. When I got serious about this, I made a conscious decision that I was going to make it as hard, you know, you can only do so much to get your book in front of people, but I was going to make it as easy as possible for people to say yes to me and make it really hard for them to say no. And by that I mean um, following every, you know, if you're approaching agents and or publishers or whatever, following... All their rules and regulations, even down to the, the point size of your font and things like that. But that's um that's just a little by the by to to say that it's it really is that I think I'm the sort of embodiment of the of the saying you know the harder you work the luckier you get because. Now, back to my dream run, I actually started the novel as a bit of an aside because I'd done a course with Curtis Brown Creative, which Curtis Brown are a very big literary agency in London. And I was living, oh no, I was back here. I was going to say I was living in London at the time. No, I was back at the time. And I got onto their inaugural three-month novel writing course online. Like they'd just started to do them in-house. And what Curtis Brown did that was so innovative was because they are such a large agency, rather than they sort of turned things on their head and they decided that they'd start their own creative school and rather than or alongside uh, sitting back and waiting for manuscripts to come in and sit on the slush pile and, you know, you know, hundreds and hundreds a week and sift through them, they wanted to nurture new writers or, or, or even established writers but they wanted to nurture writers and, you know, set them off on their publishing journey and and not necessarily with them but just out into the world and so they started Curtis Brown Creative and this particular course was a um it was an invitation which means you know you you got chosen on the 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 strength of your first three chapters first ten thousand words I think it was and um and your letter and everything. Anyway I got chosen which was amazing to me and it was very very exciting and I did that course with them and they just give you a really practical insights into structure and plotting and you know things like that so I did that course and I was working on another novel one of one of the three that's hiding away on the hard drive and I got some really good feedback on that and I was very excited and very motivated and I continued on and then I kind of lost my mojo a bit for for various reasons and and I stopped doing that but then they advertised, I was going back to, because I was back and forwards to London a lot. And they invited old students to come into the offices of Curtis Brown and just do a week intensive with a, a, a like an established author. And I thought oh, I really wanted to do that. And I had planned on going to London. So I signed up for that. On the plane over, literally on the plane over, I thought about these characters and I did this very very brief outline which hasn't really you know, oh, it, it's still the same as it is now but it's, it's a lot different if you know what I mean and that was Norman Foreman and for that week that's what I worked on. I wanted that feeling of going into the Curtis Brown offices you know they're kind of legendary in London it's in Piccadilly Circus and it's just like oh, oh Piccadilly sorry and it's just I really wanted to to be in the be in the mix and see what these offices were like, and and it really was fun. It was such an amazing week. I met some really great people, and while we were sitting there in the sort of fishbowl boardroom in the middle of the offices, I got a nudge from a guy that was sitting next to me, who who was actually another Australian guy, and he said, "Look, look out there!" and it was Barry Humphries. Reception, <laughs> <laughs> we we're like, oh my god, we're hit the big time. We're really in the famous offices. And- That's a very much by the by story. (laughs) But on the last day of that um, that summer school, they brought in some agents from their sister agency, which is Conval and Walsh or CNW, and a couple of their own agents. And it was, it was, they said, you know, this is just a practice. This is not, you're not really doing a pitch, you're not doing anything. This is just to show you what it would be like. And so we, we all pitched our novels and I totally, totally fluffed mine up because I was so nervous of we were all sitting there in front of lots of people and important agents and stuff. And no matter how they tell you that, you know, don't have any illusions that you're actually doing a pitch to an agent, you, you do think, oh yeah, but you still want to get it right. Anyway, we did that and I messed it up, which was quite funny for everyone else not necessarily for me and at the end we had a little cocktail party and there was an agent there which I hadn't couldn't believe when she walked in because she was the one who I'd researched very thoroughly and I thought when I finish my book if and when I do she's the agent she's from CNW. she's the agent that I would I would see as my agent that I would really want anyway so she was actually there and, you know, over a glass of champagne, I sort of walked up to her and I said, oh, when I finish this book, you know, w- would it be all right to pitch to you? And she said, oh, yes. She goes, it sounds adorable. And that was the words that, that I left with ringing in my ear. I was like, oh, my gosh, she said it sounds adorable. Anyway, fast forward many moons later, and I did send it to her. And she says now that she totally remembers my pitch and she said it wasn't that <laughs> Said, I do remember you. You were sitting right there. She said, oh, I do remember. Because it was a few years later then. She said, no, no, I totally remember. Anyway, I did pitch it to her and she got back to me within, I think it was like 48 hours and said, don't, um, she said, have you sent it to anyone else? She goes, I just want to let you know that I'm reading it and I really love it. And, and I was I was absolutely blown away because I sent it off and sat back for my three to six month wait that I knew was was fairly you know fairly standard you just hate through no one's fault it's just that agents get so many so many um submissions it's it's a long process for them to work through and then they ask you for your Full manuscript, but I'd already sent my full manuscript um, to her. Like I said at the beginning, that I'd planned everything that I was making it really had easy for people to say yes to me. One of the things I knew was that you never. There's certain times of the year that you never ever send your manuscript to an agent, and one of them is before the London Book Fair. This is in. I'm talking about in the UK. The London Book Fair is that, and the and the Frankfurt one. They're the most important times of the or, or busiest times of the year, and I knew and I knew that, and so I had to get this, and that's in March, and so I had to get this manuscript off and I did I got it off on the last day of January or something I can't remember and I sat back and I was like I've done everything right and when she sent that first email like days later she said I loved it she said we're just flat out at the moment preparing for the London Book Fair but I'm (laughs) going to try and get back to you and I googled and I'm like oh my god they brought it forward that year. (laughs) So it was the worst possible I could have sent it, but anyway. And then within, um, so she read it that weekend and by the sort of Monday, so it was about four or five days later, she offered me representation and it was my absolute, I so hadn't expected that and it was the best thing that ever happened to me. She's quite renowned for working with authors editorially, which not all agents do. So I worked with her for... Probably she gave me some notes and it was nothing major easy edits then she took it to publishers so she said it was ready you know it was all polished and it was as good as it could be and within uh maybe i don't know another 48 hours she said there's there's a lot of interest in it so it's going to auction but before the auction closed, Transworld in the UK, which is part of Penguin Random House, came in and swooped in and, uh, you know, made us an offer we couldn't refuse and all of that sort of stuff. It was like something out of a Hollywood movie. It truly was. I knew that the the um, the auction was finishing at a certain time, like it finishes at three 3pm 3 or something on whatever day. But that was, of course, with the time difference. It was the middle of the night for me. I was asleep in bed and my phone rang in the middle of the night. And I thought, oh, it's a strange number. But... I am expecting to hear from Sue at some stage, but I thought, oh, well, the auction hasn't finished yet. It's not it's not the correct time. Anyway, I answered it. And she was in New York at, at, a, at a different whatever they do over there, some other book fair. And um, she just had the, the offer from Transworld. And so she was standing in the middle of, I don't know, Fifth Avenue or something, <laughs> calling me. I was lying in bed in the middle of the night. And so she's told me. So we accepted. And it was, yeah, you know, that was a very long and convoluted way of saying, dream come true <laughs> whilst I I revel in my good luck and my good fortune and it's so wonderful I am very aware that it's not so you know it's it's a hard slog and you know this this has happened for me now but that doesn't mean that the next book is not I mean I have got a two book deal so it doesn't but the next one's definitely getting published but after that you know it's it, as an, as an author I totally know, even more so now, how difficult it can be for some fabulous authors to get noticed and to to get out there. I don't want to get on a soapbox or anything, but I want to say that it's totally possible and it's, you know, all you have to do is just keep going and keep trying.
0: Fantastic. I love that story. Just so inspiring. I think no one can be in any doubt about my feelings about this book and perhaps it's because I have sons of my own. I was so incredibly enchanted by Sadie and Norman and their very special relationship. But I'm interested to know where the spark of inspiration for this book came from.
1: Well, to be honest, it's one of those books, you know, people, some people's, um, the plot comes to them first and some the character. In this case, the characters definitely led the entire story. The characters came to me and <laughs> perhaps not in the middle of the night in a dream, but it almost seemed like that because I i don't remember a time that I didn't know Sadie and Norman and when they arrived they really were the old writer's cliche, fully formed. they I never had to do any um Character development on them, or write little folders of what they'd have for breakfast and stuff like that. I always just knew them straight away, and so from then, I, I knew Norman was a you know twelve year old boy, I knew Sadie was a was a mum, and I honestly can't remember where the first idea of of comedy came from, but I think I I, I mean I do go and see a lot of stand up, and I'm I am a big comedy fan myself, but I do remember thinking right at the beginning how awful would it be if you were so into comedy and you were such you know such a comedy fan and you really wanted to do that but what if you were really terrible at it and so that was one of the first germs of, of inspiration. I've always been really interested in the I guess the relationship between you know, comedy and tragedy, and just the healing power of humour. I guess on on you know on feelings of great grief, and you know they're they're quite strong topics like grief, single parenting, things like that. You know, childhood grief especially. But I was interested in exploring the effect of of comedy or not necessarily comedy, but happiness upon that sort of thing. And I definitely remember the, the what if question that came to me and I thought, yeah, this and this is sort of carried all the way through and, and it's never left me, which was what if the absolute worst thing that could ever happen to you in your life led you to the best time of your life because, you know, it's a very much a sliding doors sort of thing. Like anything that happens, everything from that point is a knock-on effect and if you don't open that door in that second of time, what are you missing out on? Or if you do open it, all the things that, you know, like the domino effect, all the things that, that happen once you've opened that door and seen that thing or spoken to that person or eaten that food or stepped out in front of that car, they're all interrelated. And so the main thing I was trying to explore was that relationship between something really terrible happening and yet if that terrible thing hadn't happened, all this good stuff, that ensued from it wouldn't have happened either.
0: Now, I think we've gone about it, well, I've gone about it a little bit backwards. But for those who haven't yet read the book, can you tell me more about the story?
1: Yeah, of course. So the story's is about uh, 12-year-old Norman Foreman and his single mother, Sadie. Norman and his best friend are a couple of young boys who are obsessed with uh, old-time British comedy, and they've got their own five-year plan to take their fledgling comedy act all the way to the famous Edinburgh Fringe. But then, and it's no spoiler because it happens very early on, but then um, Jax dies and so Norman's left not only devastated at the loss of his friend but also um, he's now just half of the comedy duo. And his mother, Sadie, who she's very self-deprecating and she she thinks she's a bit of a, a no-hoper and she's kind of afraid of everything, but she discovers through this because all she wants to do is see Norman smile again because she has to watch him try and navigate this grief. But she discovers that she'll actually do anything for him to, to make her son happy again, and so she resolves to not only make their dream come true and get Norman to the Edinburgh Fringe after all, um, but she also um, decides to help him find the father that he's never known, and she has never cared about. And so the story, along with their friend, Leonard, they plot and plan this trip to, from Penzance, where the story starts, um, and incidentally where I started writing it, <laughs> um, to all the way to the Edinburgh Fringe, stopping off at various places along the way to possibly meet um, some of the candidates that could be his father.
0: Uh, that's an excellent summary of the book. Obviously, the mother-son bond in this book is such a prominent theme. Sadie and Norman's devotion to one another is so special, but it's so much more than this. It's a book about grief and about how both Sadie and Norman come to terms with their grief over the loss of
1: Jack's and also the loss of Sadie's dad, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. And I'm, I'm glad you picked up on that because it's very easy and I delight in people being charmed by Norman, <laughs> but it's also very much Sadie's story. She... Mrs. Jack's just as much, but she's got the tragedy of seeing a child die, which is very hard, perhaps even harder as an adult because you understand it more, seeing her son's best and only friend die, and just in the process of having to go searching for without giving spoilers, I mean if you don't know who the father of your child is, you know there's something going on in the background there <laughs> and so, so this whole journey for Sadie is a real tug of war because she's going to do it because she's determined, or you know, she just wants to see Norman happy again and she thinks this is the only way she can do it. But it's going to dredge up a whole lot of stuff from her own past. And as you said, a lot of that involves her own father. Um, so, yes, it's very much about, very much about grief. It's not Jack's, it's not just the, the very real and, um, recent grief it it brings up a lot of things that Sadie hasn't dealt with for the past well the past 13 years since Norman was conceived very interestingly in a rather frenzied couple of months.
0: Yes she was busy wasn't she? She was busy. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So the book is told in
0: alternating points of view, both in first person, incidentally, a a Sadie chapter followed by a Norman chapter, and you get to see the same events filtered through the different points of view. So was this a conscious decision on your part to tell the story this way, or was it just the way the story came out? A bit
1: of both, really. It it was conscious in that it was all I ever wanted to do. And I can't, I never tried to write it, not in the first person, because my style of writing, and again, my next book is also written in the first person. And that's not to say one day I'm not going to try and do something different. But for me, my style of writing and my style of getting into a character's head, I find that you can get a lot deeper. I mean, there's you know there's disadvantages in writing in the first person, as you know, because you know you can only see as far as the character can see, and there's certain things that you you know it's quite tricky to make known. But I think with a story, that's I mean, definitely it needed both points of view because the story is very much about how Sadie and Norman they don't know it, but they are well and truly each other's heroes, you know, like they absolutely, he he adores her, she adores him, but they both think they're a little bit lacking, you know, in the relationship. Mm. And of course, writing in the first person, you know, it's a really good way of being able to see the truth.
0: The character of Jack's Norman's best friend looms quite large in this book. And the first line of every one of Norman's chapters is one of these comedy rules, all of which are the first rule, incidentally. Given that the Edinburgh Comedy Fringe Festival is a real event, and I know you've spent time in Scotland, and as you said, that you're a fan of comedy, I wondered how much research you had to do for the novel to flesh out this aspect of the story.
1: I did do quite a bit of research. I've never been to the Edinburgh Fringe myself. That was something that was supposed to happen in 2020 mm. to coincide with the original <laughs> launch of the book, but that didn't happen. Um, but I have been to Edinburgh many times and absolutely loved it. But the Fringe, I did have to do a Certain amount of um, research, and I'm actually still on. I still get on their mailing list. I still get stuff, you know, dear participant in the Edinburgh Fringe, because I joined up to just to find out, you know, what the process was. So I checked. Really, all I had to check was that it was feasible, uh, that what I was saying that could, could happen, that, uh, you know, young kids are allowed to join and this could happen and that could happen and just the sort of nuts and bolts of how you find a venue and things like that. So there was a certain amount of research, but the main research I did, and a lot of it didn't really get in, but I think it helped me. In fact, most of it didn't get in, was just watching videos and just looking at photos and websites and things about the, the whole vibe of the fringe when it's all going on because it's a massive thing you know it's one of the biggest comedy festivals in the world or arts festivals I should say it's not just comedy um and so that really helped me to get the vibe of what was going on and as i say it kind of didn't really get into the book i didn't go into describing you know what the atmosphere was like at the fringe in the end yeah it really helped me get an idea of what what edinburgh was was like at that time and it's also made me so much want to go to the fringe <laughs> and i oh. will <laughs> Absolutely, it made me want to go. Yeah. (laughs) It looks like such a fantastic time and it's such a, you know, inclusive and joyful festival. But Norman never, or Norman and someone else, never really wanted him to just, you know, front up on a street corner and do his thing. They wanted him to have a proper show. So, there's, um, there's that aspect of it. <laughs> and the other
0: thing of note which I found really fascinating in this book I probably should mention is that Norman suffers from a debilitating skin condition and I think the effect of this for me was that it made him so much more vulnerable and in a way explains why Sadie is so scared for him a lot of the time. So I wanted to ask you, was that conscious on your part?
1: Yeah, I I really wanted poor old Norman to to have a lot of challenges Um just to be able to show the way he works through them and, and yeah vulnerability exactly was one of the reasons I wanted him to have that but you know I wanted him to you know the, the condition is is psoriasis and that's sort of not a secret but um I personally haven't suffered from psoriasis but I do suffer from a terrible allergy to a particular chemical and so I kind of you know, on a very much smaller scale than what Norman suffers. I understand the the feeling of, you know, looking a bit gruesome at times, (laughs) not being able to go out. But I also had a very good friend when I was a teenager, had a very good friend who suffered from not psoriasis, but eczema, and who really suffered badly and she you know her hands were really painful looking and stuff and and I was with her on numerous occasions when you could just see the reaction people shrink away like you know and and it's it's never left me I've always remembered that and I find it really cruel it's a really debilitating thing to suffer from it's a very visual thing you know any kind of disability or condition that's visual it's, it's a big challenge for the person And and I kind of it's not a message there's no message in there or you know I'm not trying to say anything beyond what I'm saying in the book but I think it's really important to be aware of people's differences and to understand perhaps a little bit of what they're going through behind what you can see
0: for me Norman was an incredibly special character it was impossible not to love him the way he grieved for his friend his inherent understanding that his mother was fragile and that he felt he needed to look after her but he also had integrity Um, and that's just so it was so obvious and so incredibly touching despite being so frightened by performing his comedy act at the festival three years ahead of schedule I might add uh, and without his best mate at his side he was still determined to go through it and I think at one point in the book Sadie says that Norman is far braver than she ever was which I thought was a
1: really lovely sentiment I'm so glad you noticed that too and but and that was kind of very um intentional as well because I wanted to show that you know I think your kids are by and large a product of their upbringing and it was a way too of showing that while Sadie thought she was a bit of a loser You don't bring up a kid like that by by accident, you know. There's it's all rubbed off and stuff. So yeah, and he was integrity is a great word that does have way beyond his years. And it's like, well, where did he get that from? And you know, why is he like he is? And and it's it's I would imagine the way I always think of it is it's a combination of having the challenges that he has coming from a single parent family, having his skin issues, and um yeah I think it all formed into this little boy that is pretty damn charming <laughs> indeed absolutely beautiful So, Julietta, given your experiences with this book
0: and your journey to publication, I was wondering if you had any words of wisdom for aspiring writers out there about the writing process uh, or about seeking publication for their book over and above what you've already told us.
1: It's really interesting that as soon as you get published, (laughs) it's asking you for writing advice. It's like, oh, five minutes ago, I was scouring my own writing advice sort of thing. But, you know, for me, it, the 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 best bit of writing advice is is the oldest and the oldies and the goodies and the cliche which is just write and just be prepared to write absolute nonsense because you know it's very hard I think especially if you're a perfectionist as a lot of writers are it's very hard that the stuff that's in your head that great oh, that beautiful prose and that wonderful flow that's in your head and then it doesn't quite come out the tips of your fingers onto the keyboard all the time, fully formed and perfectly edited and whatever. So you've got to allow yourself to, to write rubbish and then it's it's in the editing. And, that, the you know, the magic is in the editing. It really, really, truly is. But I think, and this is not my advice, I read it somewhere and I've got no idea who said it. But I think it really resonated with me, and it obviously has because I've never forgotten it, and I did it, which was to write for your characters. Like don't write don't write to get published, don't write for your friends, don't write to the audience that you think is going to exist for your book or your writing, whatever it is. But write for your characters. And I think if you, this, I mean this is my own personal experience, but that it was I got to a point, which was fairly early on actually, I got to a point that it was a lot easier for me or, or I, I felt compelled to keep going and it was easier for me to keep going than it was to stop and watch Netflix because I, I just genuinely fell in love with Norman and Sadie and Leonard myself mm. and I wanted, you know, I wanted to, you know, without sounding really, la la or woo woo or whatever I wanted to do them justice you know these amazing characters had come to me and and I wanted to do them justice and I wanted to finish their story and not have it be another one just sitting on your on the hard drive so I think it's really important to get behind your own work and find find yourself a place you know not everything works again you'd know this too not everything works be prepared to give up on something that's not working and because there's, you know, you've got infinite possibilities and find a story. Um, you know, in my case, it's characters, but for other people, it's it's a plot. You know, perhaps if, if murder mysteries or, you know, thrillers and murder mysteries, that's a little bit of an old fashioned term, but <laughs> thrillers and stuff like that, you know, police procedures yeah. and stuff, it's more often the plot that might come to you and you go, wow, this is a plot that I can stay with. But if it, whether it's the plot or the characters, if you pick something that you can stay with for a couple of years or longer, and then beyond that, because you're going to be talking about it for the rest of your life once it's published, um, I think that's the the key of, of, you know, just getting to the end. And another thing that, again, someone that I can't remember, someone cleverer than me said, the only difference between a published author and a non-published author is that the published author finished. And I guess the last piece of advice, which again is not original because it's all all writing advice I think is, is you know, it comes across as almost clichéd, But it's for a reason, because it's absolutely true, because everyone that's then any writer, successful author who, published author, I should say, who, um, is asked for advice realizes that all that advice that they've heard you know down the track is so true and one of the most important things is to read and read as widely as you can and read out of your genre I so had never read thrillers or you know I don't watch that sort of thing I don't watch NCIS and stuff it just doesn't really interest me but then um, I've had a couple of friends who in, in the writing community who have you know published thrillers or police procedurals and things like that oh my gosh I enjoyed them so much and I thought why am I not reading this another friend of mine has written dystopian um, fiction and which again was so far off my radar but when I read it I was like wow so this Mm. is clever and it's really good I think if you read out of your your normal genre you'll find out a lot about structure and plotting and um, techniques that writers use and you'll find what you like and what you don't like and and you'll also be inspired, you know, because if you're holding a book in your hand or on your Kindle, you know, that's someone who's finished that book and it's out there and they've, you know, they've achieved that. And it's 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 a really doable thing, but you do have to keep going and push through all your own self-doubts and anyone else's doubts. I mean, why shouldn't, you know, that's what, that's the way I look at it is the old saying, everyone's got a book in them. Well, I think that's probably true, but not everyone wants to write a book. But if you want to write a book, go do it.
0: Julietta, you mentioned you were working on a second novel, but I wondered, is there any chance we'd ever see Norman again?
1: Oh, look, you're not the first to have asked that. And look, Norman's never going to be gone for me. He's here. It would be a little difficult, I think, to write another a, a, a sequel or whatever you want to call it with Norman in it currently because it's so contemporary and he, he is still, you know, only 12 or 13. Mm-hmm. It might be really interesting to see where he's gone in five years' time. And so I definitely, I I, I can hand on heart say I don't have any plans to, but I also don't have plans not to. What I can guarantee you is if that I do bring Norman out for another airing, it will be something very unexpected. He might end up being a postman or something like that. I don't (laughs) know. (laughs) might actually be a really good idea.
0: (laughs) We'll just have to listen back to this podcast and you'll be reminded of this idea.
1: You'll be in the credits, thanks to Claudine. <laughs> um, but the other thing that is really tempting and it's really nibbling away at my heels is Leonard because I love Leonard so, so much that I can't guarantee he's not going to show up again in some way or form. Not in this next book. I don't think I could crowbar him in there. <laughs> I mean, I probably could actually, just thinking about it then. I probably could fit him into this book, but I, I won't. But, um, yeah, I've, I've got a bit of an itch to scratch when it comes to, to Leonard because there was so much more to his story that, you know, I know it but didn't get into the book because, yeah. you know, as you would know, like your characters, you know things about them but that just helps you form your own, you know, sort of little little character thing but it doesn't necessarily get put down in in black and white. So, Yes. So the possibility is of who knows, who knows? Not me, that's for sure. But look, I love that people are asking if there's more of Norman.
0: Julietta, I absolutely loved this book and the opportunity to chat with you about it today. Congratulations
1: once again. And thank you for joining me on Talking Aussie Books. Oh, thank you so much, Claudine. Thanks for inviting me. And thanks to everyone for listening. And I hope you will get to meet Norman and love him as much as I do. Well, that's a wrap folks. If you enjoyed this
0: podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or drop me a line by my Instagram at Claudine Tinellis or on my webpage, claudinetinellis.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading.